In a world overrun with an infinite amount of multiverses, originating from a plethora of sources, four longtime friends band together to try to make sense of it all and present it to an audience in an easy-to-digest podcast. This is Geeking Off the Page. Greetings, geeks. This is Mike Kitchen. You can throw your dog the invisible bone. Hey everybody, this is Trevor, and it may sound like sometimes I'm, I'm ragging on my wife when we're doing the podcast, but she's the one who's really supporting me through all this, so she's aces in my book. Hey there, I'm Gavin, and everybody, get in here! Hi, I'm Troy, and uh, say hi to your mother for me. So this is Geeking Off the Page, a collection of friends that uh, have been at this for quite a while, and we're just using technology now to bring it to the world. We basically sit around and just uh, uh, talk shit about uh, different things that uh, appeal to us in uh, the uh, geekdom of uh, the genre that we follow, like comic books and sci-fi and, and horror and everything under the sun sort of thing. Um, so, uh, this is us back at it again. Uh, we're, uh, just trying to muddle through life and all that. And, uh, here we are going with, uh, episode, uh, 36 of our podcast. So, um, we're just going to carry on from this point on and, uh, who knows what the future is going to be, but, uh, every once in a while we'll come together make an actual full episode and maybe we'll just throw out a couple of like little half hour, 45 minute episodes from here and there along the line. So there you go, folks. Um, so we're going to start off with um, a little bit of uh, housekeeping, and we're going to be doing um, finishing off what we have put together about a month ago, and that's uh, one of our projects that we call uh, Defending Your Role. And uh, this particular time around, we had uh, everyone put into votes about uh, the uh, best non-Christmas Christmas movie out there, and uh, the ones that you had to choose from were uh, basically it was uh, Batman Returns. Uh, Lethal Weapon, Gremlins, and The Ref. And each of uh, your hosts here had to defend their particular randomly picked uh, role of the movie. And uh, we put it out into the ether and had people vote on it. So uh, it has been a while since we got to this. And um, so the final results come in at uh, a total ground total of nine votes uh, for between the four movies. Uh, no, actually, Batman was our biggest one, <laughs> the, the first one that we did. So, uh, But uh, this time around, coming in fourth place, uh, which was uh, Lethal Weapon, which was what I defended, and uh, nobody voted for that. So uh, coming in um, at uh, technically tied for second would be uh, Batman Returns and The Ref, two votes each. And the winner of the non-Christmas Christmas movie with five votes in total is Gremlins. That's a so, strong win. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> so that was uh, that was the final results on that. After well, the, the polls themselves were only up for about three weeks after the actual thing. It's just been sitting in limbo since then. So, but uh, yeah, so that's the results of that. So we're gonna get back to one of our other. Uh, previously worked on uh, projects and uh, it is going to be our uh, top 10 list that we are slowly but surely uh, filtering through and uh, right now we're up to our number five pick now um, 
it's basically our own personal references of our top 10 movies. We basically uh, bring them to the group, discuss uh, why this is on our list, where it is on our particular lists, and uh, what it means to us and have a quick little discussion, all that. So uh, this particular week, it's going to be uh, Mr. Michael is going to start off with his number five. Hey, Mike, what's your number five? Number five on my list. Uh, it's a movie we've talked about before. And it's also one that reminds me of what Trevor keeps bringing up. Whereas if you asked me this 20 years ago, probably would have been maybe not even on my top 10, but it just keeps going higher and higher and higher. And the older I get, the more I appreciate it. And the more they try and do remakes, the more I appreciate the original. And that is 1984's Ghostbusters. And I saw this one when I was nine years old. This is another movie we saw up at the cottage. And as I've said before, I'm not big on the horror films, not big on the zombie films and ghosts and ghouls and all that kind of stuff. But somehow this movie just works. I don't know. Maybe Peter Venkman just makes it okay. But this movie, it's like as time goes on, I keep seeing all the different genius things in it that make it work so well. And the more you learn about the making of the movie, it's almost impossible that it turned out as good as it did, considering there's so much wacky stuff in it. Uh, the story that Dan Aykroyd made, it's interesting how it was supposed to be a bunch of like weird, interdimensional, futuristic ghost. What was it? Ghost slammers? Is that what they would call them? Um, but then they had to pull it back. It's like, well, this movie's way too crazy. Let's bring it back down to reality. It's interesting how his family has experience with ghosts. And he basically grew up in a haunted house. And his great-grandfather was a spiritualist or a psychic investigator. They conducted seances. And even when he was on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, he's talking about all those experiences. But you can tell by the movie that a lot of the substance of the story connected to him, even to the invisible man in the bed, like he said, he actually had an experience where there was a ghost in the bed and he could feel the presence. So that's interesting. Um, other weird things about this movie that just ended up being weird with casting, how like Michael Keaton was originally considered for Peter Venkman. Like that would have been weird. Like, but he probably could pull it off. He could play similar characters. But the fact Bill Murray got in there, that's pretty awesome. Uh, Eddie Murphy was supposed to be uh, Winston and I can just see how that would have changed the dynamic if Eddie Murphy popped up halfway through the film and stole the show that would have been a different movie but uh, with Ernie Hudson playing the role I really like him in it because he's the everyman he's the blue collar worker that comes in he just wants a job next thing you know he's hunting ghosts John Candy at one point was supposed to be Louis Tully. And I could not picture John Candy in that role. But the fact that John Candy wanted to take it in a different direction, didn't really understand the character, so he turned it down. Rick Moranis got it, and we got one of the most iconic characters of that movie. So, like, all these just weird things in the making of it, you know, you can see what a different movie it could have been, but it pulled itself together into the movie that it ended up being. Another interesting thing is that to be short or shot in a very short period of time. I guess they made a promise to the studio that it, they could have it done in a year for $30 million. They didn't know how they were going to pull it off, but they just did. So the whole movie, they're just shooting by the 
seat of their pants. All the goofy stuff that shouldn't have worked, like the safe puff marshmallow man. Like if you're gonna make a ghost movie, but your big bad is a giant marshmallow, again, doesn't make sense. Uh Slimer, that's an interesting character because he was basically based on John Belushi. So, so the idea is Dan Aykroyd wanted John Belushi to be part of the movie back when he started writing it, but then he passed away. So the inspiration for Slimer, they used John Belushi. And anyways, throughout the movie, it's just interesting how like the flow of the story with just these university professors investigating the paranormal, get fired from their job from all the stupid experiments they're doing. Next thing you know, there's a ghost invasion. They start their own business. And then when it's a full-on ghost invasion, they have to hire help. And then things go absolutely epic once Gozer shows up. So the flow of the story is interesting. The Some epic moments in that is like the ghost escaping from the confinement. Like I remember being a kid in the theater watching that going, oh my God, what the hell is going to happen next? And then... The music choices in it while everything's happening. One of the greatest soundtracks. In fact, uh, we have Saving the Day on our car MP3. <laughs> and anytime I'm driving around town and that one comes on, it's like, come on, let's run some red lights. Um, there's an interesting thing towards the end with the climax of the movie where you know the mayor brings them into the office and they've got uh, what is it's like the Pope or whatever the religious people and they have like all the different divisions of the government all there and then when they actually go to the final fight and it's tanks and police cars and it's just like a huge army of people supporting the Ghostbusters I th- that's one thing in that movie that I think the only one that kind of comes close to that is the original Blues Brothers with the car chase where it's just something at the end that's so epic and i don't know it just like you feel it when it happens it feels like it's a gigantic moment and with the crowds cheering you have priests and rabbis and punks um earthquakes and everything else like it's just huge so being a little kid seeing that one in the theater um the demon dogs everything else the mixture of the horror the comedy the action the suspense the solid writing and just the bonkers ideas in this movie the more I watch it, the more I see how strong it is. Yeah, it just keeps floating up my list. And it seems like every year it gets one higher. So, again, we've talked about this movie a lot, so there's not much more to say. But Ghostbusters, yeah, somehow it floated up to number five on my list. Best movies of all time. Who's up next? Gavin? Sure. I can do, I can do my number five. Okay, well, I haven't seen this one hit the uh, hit the list yet. So, well, here goes. Uh, my number five, as always, is only number five because some jerkwad maybe put a number to it. Um, it opens in an idyllic town in 1957, a world mired in the depths of the Cold War, where everyone could be a commie spy. Our main character, oblivious to the Soviet threat, became the luckiest boy in America with his very own giant robot. I am, of course, talking about the Iron Giant. Every boy's fantasy is to have his very own giant robot, and, well, Hogarth gets his. I don't have mine yet, but, well, I digress. 
directed by Brad Pitt, who went on to direct some of Disney's mo- most beloved Pixar films. You mean Brad Bird? Bird. Brad Bird, yes. Yeah, not Brad Pitt. Brad Bird. Yeah. Brad Bird. Read it wrong. Thank you. You're welcome. And released in 1999, it was a commercial flop due to poor promotion from uh, Warner Brothers. The story starts with Hogarth Hughes, voiced by Eli uh, Marenthal, uh, raised by a single mother, Jennifer Anson, Anderson, voiced, voicing Annie Hughes, discovering a giant metal robot wandering around aimlessly in the forest after crash landing. The giant, with no memory of who he is, is portrayed incredibly convincingly by Vin Diesel, who maybe speaks perhaps 20 words in the entire movie. Becomes fast friends with Hogarth, who in, who in turn is pursu- pursued by Kent Mansley, voiced by Christopher McDonald, a convincingly paranoid government agent. Hiding the giant from Ken, Dean McCoppin, as voiced by Harry McConnick Jr., discovers the giant ha- has a secret. After convincing the, um, the military that the giant is not a threat, they go on and... Sorry, I, I had written something down here. Fuck. Just wing it, Gav. We're doing it live. Yeah, we, we, we like to wing. Yeah, I don't. I don't like to write things down here. Uh, anyway, so uh, Dean McCoppin discovers a the, the robot's hiding a secret. Uh, anytime it gets threatened, it, it basically responds with, uh, with violence and, and guns and laser beams. You manage to hide the, the giant from the military. Uh, convincing that uh, the giant is not a threat, but when uh, Kent Mansley uh, sees the uh, giant robot saving children in, in the in the town, uh, he, ma- he manages to get a, a nuclear missile launched, leaving the Iron Giant as the only possible defense this, the, the town had. The giant sacrificed himself to save the town from nu- the nuclear missile. Uh, this movie gets me every single time I watch it. One of the most inspirational lines I've ever heard in a movie is, uh, you are who you choose to be. And then you hear the giant go, Superman. And basically rockets uh, headfirst into a nuclear missile. It just makes me tear up every single time. Vin Diesel alone managed to put in so much emotion in a hugely modulated voice effect and somehow it works. This is one of those movies that I bought as soon as I could on, on DVD. And it was only recently, 2016 specifically, that they finally released an incredible Blu-ray release, which I actually have right here. Huge box set with personal notes from Brad Bird, not Pitt, thank you. And uh, some, some uh, collector uh, prints and all that sort of stuff, which I'm at some point going, planning to get framed. Uh, I assume it's going to be uh, another 25 years before we see the 64 resolution uh, or 64K resolution version released on Brain Vision or whatever the next media is going to be. But I will say the snappy writing, the incredible animation, the talented voices, the incredible music all bring it together to bring make it one of my favorite top all-time movies. Did you end up getting the statue of it? The, I forget what company made it. That big giant uh, figure. A bunch of guys um, had ordered that one. Yeah, no, I, I I couldn't justify that at the time. This is uh, this is the uh, picture there of the of the statue. Right. I, uh, I I I couldn't. It, it's eight feet tall. <laughs> it wouldn't fit in my upstairs. My ceilings are only seven feet. 
I'd have to cut a hole in the ceiling to put it. I, I, I'm pretty sure Amanda would kill me if I decided to bring that home one day. Where is I'm he going to sit? Somewhere. Oh, I have a little one to... about this big. Well, this this pack, this box set actually came with a little tiny figure about like three inches, four inches. I ended up buying one of the uh, one of the toys way, way, way back. It has a uh, when it uh, when they had the actual toys. You know, amazingly, they actually had toy tie-ins with this. Which uh, had they been you know advertising it from the start, uh, Darren Giant would have gotten a lot more recognition. Oh, but a few it's... of our uh, uh, classmates and alumni worked on that film. Yeah, uh, Ricardo. Yeah, his name. Ricardo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember watching the special features on the DVD, and there he was. Just, hey, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, it's such a shame, too, that a, a movie that good got so uh, under notice when it was released. Because there, there's, if people knew about it, there's no way that wouldn't have been a blockbuster. Because everybody yeah. that saw it eventually was blown away by it. I consider myself very lucky to have actually been able to see it in the theaters. Uh, I saw it in theaters. Oh, I missed it. Twice. (laughs) So I went to see it, and then I went back the next day to make sure I I was remembering what I was seeing because it it has such an impact. All right. So I think that jumps to me now for my number five. And I know that my number five has not been discussed yet. I've been keeping track. Um. So if everyone remembers, um, earlier on my list, uh, number seven was a horror movie, The Exorcist. And I said it was one of the scariest movies I'd ever seen. Uh, it, was the mo- it was the horror movie that kind of desensitized me to horror movies. To all but one. This is my number five. It came out in 1975. This movie became the prototype of the blockbuster. The summer it came out, lines upon lines of people waiting to get in to see this film. It had such a huge impact on movie-going culture. For those of you who've already figured it out, I'll, you know, end the suspense, directed by Steven Spielberg, 1975, Jaws. You know, people were afraid to go back in the water. Uh, This movie was made for a budget of $9 million, and in 1975 made $472 million. It held the record for the biggest box office for two years until this tiny little film called Star Wars came out and finally toppled it off the off the list at number one. Um, for those of you who don't know what Jaws uh, is about, um, it's time to crawl out from underneath that rock and, and, and watch a really great movie. Um, it all takes place in a small beach town called Amity Island. Um, and it opens with, you know, bunch of teenagers having a beach party late at night and this young girl uh, Chrissy Watkins decides to go for a midnight swim and try to entice her boyfriend out for a little bit of uh, fun in the surf and while she's out there swimming waiting for him to, to come out she gets nabbed by a great white shark now the the hallmark of this film was it was hinted at but rarely shown. We rarely, if ever, got to see the shark. And that's what had, at least in my opinion, and and I've read opinions of others, is what made this film so successful is you didn't see the creature. You got hints of it. You saw its aftermath. But we didn't get to see it directly that often. And so, you know, they end up finding what's left of her on the the beach. 
coroner says, well, maybe boating accident or drowned or something. Um, because the thing is, is in Amity Island, the, the summer beachgoers, like the tourists, is how the island survives every year. During the tourist season, that's where all the businesses make their money that float them through the, through the winter and into the next summer season. So they can't go without the tourist dollars. The mayor, um, basically, he's overriding everyone saying it's a boating accident because he doesn't want to get, you know, he doesn't want to lose the, the income. Um, and opposing him is Sheriff Brody, who is a New Yorker, doesn't like the water, but is on the island because his wife was, is a native. Um, and at one point, um, they're all at the beach. And there's the young boy, Alex Kittner, he's out. And people see the attack. And we only see like a, a bit of like the rolling over of a fin. And there's this great tracking shot where they zoom in on Roy Schneider's face. At the same time, pulling back, like opening up the focus. So it feels like the background just rushes away from him as we zoom in on his face. It's a beautiful shot. It was used, you know, in several other films before this, but has become known as the Jaws shot. Because so many filmmakers, it's such... An iconic shot it just gives you such an ill at ease feeling like oh my god what's what's happening because it's something you don't normally see um so me so immediately the mayor's like well we got to catch this, this this fish a bunch of fishermen end up catching a big tiger shark meanwhile sheriff brody played by as i've said Roy Schneider, calls an oceanographer on the, um to you know come out and help and they get um oh, i forgot his name uh Richard Dreyfus as Hooper, Matt Hooper, who comes out and he immediately like he's measuring the tiger shark's mouth. He's like, this shark isn't big enough. It's, you know, it's not native to the area. It's a known man eater, but it's not the shark because he examines the, 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 the remains of Chrissy Watkins. And he's like, this shark had, had a much bigger mouth. So they, they go out, you know, uh, Hooper convinces um, Sheriff Brody to cut open the tiger shark. They find a bunch of stuff, but no Kittner boy. So they go out on the water and they find Matt Hooper's or, or, or Matt, what's his name? Uh, I know, I always know that in Ben Gardner, Ben Gardner's boat, half sunk, and Hooper jumps in the water, swims over, and as he's examining a hole in the hull, he pulls out a tooth. And immediately he knows what it is. It's the tooth of a great white shark. And this is the scene that I know it's coming. I saw this movie in 1985, 10 years after it was released. I was 12 years old. I managed to sneak my way into a theater and see it. I've seen it many times. I have probably seen this movie at least 40 times. I know the scene's coming. I could hear the music swell for it. I'm bracing myself for it. But when Ben Gardner's waterlogged you know, corpse, the head swings down through the hole, I jump. Every god damn time i jump in my seat i'm braced for it and i still jump and it is such an annoying thing because i've seen the exorcist as i said horror movies don't scare me but it's the combination of the music and the visual and the cutting and i jump in my seat like a frightened little child every goddamn time now i've watched the scene without music and i don't jump i still i mean not, i don't jump as much I still kind of give a, a quick little visceral reaction. I've cut off the picture, just listen to the music, and I still flinch. This was a perfect marriage 
of, of visual and, and, and audio. And I jump like a frightened child every damn time. And it pisses me off. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like this movie so much that this movie came out two years after I was born. As I said, I waited 10, I'd wait 10 years and saw it when I was 12 years old. And now many decades later, and I still have the same visceral reaction. That's how this movie holds up to the test of time. So from there, they decide to, you know, the crew decide they, they have to hunt down this big shark. They get Quint, Robert Shaw, in probably one of his greatest roles. Um, it, it just, he steals the show from this point on. He is the local shark hunter. He says him, Hooper, and Sheriff Brody will go out, they'll hunt the shark. And, you know, they set out on the, the boat, the Orca. They got Brody throwing a chum line. This is the first time we really see the shark because it comes right up out of the water as, you know, he's throwing, as, as Brody's throwing out the chum. And he says the iconic line as he's backing his way. I mean, he's, he's, he's shell-shocked. He's backing his way into the cabin. He says, we're going to need a bigger boat, which was a completely ad-lib line, but it's now one of the most iconic lines of, of the movie. We're going to need a bigger boat. Oh, we still use that line all the time. All the damn time. And it's, so they manage to, Quint looks at it and he estimates the, feet, the, the, the size at 25, which is bigger than the largest known recorded great white, which I think is 21 and a couple inches. So already this is a, a shark, 25 feet long, three tons, 6,000 pounds. Um, so they manage to harpoon the shark with a flotation barrel. And immediately just dives and takes the barrel underneath. Um, so at nightfall, you know, they can't obviously can't hunt the shark at night, but they're on the water. Quentin Hooper start exchanging stories. And Robert Shaw, this is where he gives the performance of his life. There's this whole sequence, this whole speech he gives about his experience. Um, he survived the attack of the U.S. Indianapolis, USS Indianapolis. For people who don't know, it was the ship that transported the first atom bomb to the the islands where it, eventually the the B twenty five took off and dropped it. The USS Indianapolis was under radio silence. After they had dropped off the bomb on their way back, they were hit by torpedoes from a Japanese sub, and the ship went in the water. Like you know, the ship broke up. The entire crew went in the water. By the time rescue boats figured out that, you know, the rescue mission was there and the rescue boat started coming, sharks had taken so many of the sailors in the water. And Quint gives this beautiful speech about, you know, the people he knew and, you know, the sharks are coming around and the people are hooping and hollering and slamming the water, trying to drive the sharks away. And he said the only time he was afraid was when the big PBY came in. It was his turn to get in. That's when he realized if he ever went in the water again, he'd never wear a life vest because the sharks were just coming up and taking the legs off of people and killing them left and right. And that's part of his anger towards sharks. That's why he hunted sharks. Um, and then, you know, at that point, the shark uh, comes around and starts hitting the boat and they realize, you know, they've got to get out of there. So... They put another barrel on it. Eventually, they put three barrels on it, and the shark is still being able to dive with three barrels, which Quint says is impossible. They realize they have to get it to, to shallower waters. In deep waters, it has all the advantages. But he overtaxes the engines. The engines blow. Shark hits the, 
boat a couple times starts to sink. Um, as it sinks, uh, Hooper decides to jump in a shark-proof cage, try to inject it with some poison. That doesn't go well. Um, shark rips the cage open like it's tin foil. Um, the you know the boat ski- continues to sink. Shark eats Quint. While he's eating Quint, he you know he's jam- trying to jam stuff into it. And eventually, um, a uh, pressurized scuba tank gets jammed in the shark corner of the shark's mouth. As it's sinking, Brody finds Quint's rifle, and when he's he's on basically the, the in the crow's nest. Um, as it's going down, he shoots the tank, head explodes, and shark's dead. And everyone's like, all right, you know, at least Brody survived. And Hooper pops up out of the water. He'd been hiding under, like, at the, the bottom of the ocean um, where it was shallow enough for him to do so. And the two of them grab some, some debris and start swimming back to shore. And a cool thing is if you watch the credits, the very end of the credits, you see the two of them reach the shore. So they made it safe. Because that was always a question like, wouldn't another shark attack them along the way? Nope, nope, they made it. Anyways, why this movie has such an impact to me. As I said, I was 12 years old when I saw this movie. After I saw this movie for a good, you know, three, four years, I refused to swim in anything I could not see the bottom of. So if I, it, it was bathtub, swimming pool, that's great. Lake, hmm, I'd stay where I could see the bottom. Um, it took a while to finally overcome that fear. And it, I shared that fear with, millions of people around the world this movie had a huge impact on people going into the water um and as i grew up i began to appreciate the cinematography more the story more the acting much much more and yeah this this movie had a profound effect on my appreciation of film and of horror film especially and as i said the exorcist completely desensitized me to horror to every horror film but one and this is the one because it still gets me we you know when we go to the beach every year every other year i see the water and i still have that split second hesitation of exactly that the perfect music the perfect music it's it runs through my head and i'm just like whoo and i eventually i mean very quickly i get over it and i'm out in the water but I still have that in the back of my mind. And it's, I think, one of the only films that does that to me, that it affects my daily life. Um, you know, I approach the ocean, I go to go swimming. And the, when I get on the beach to go get the blanket set up and the towels and the chair and the umbrella and all that stuff, we're like, let's go hit the water. There is a split second hesitation in my step every time. And it's because of this film. I know it's this film. So you know, Shark Week hasn't helped either. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, so when we were writing these lists, Jaws hit the list pretty quick. And I was kind of shocked at how fast it rose in the list and stayed there. And very few films could dislodge it. And so, as I said, this film had such a big impact on me. And that's why it's my number five. Question, have you shown it to your kids? Josie has seen parts of it, but I haven't shown my kids all of it. They... I mean, Josie's now the getting close to the age where I saw. I, I said I saw it when I was twelve, so she'll have to wait at least two years before I'll show. It. But they've watched Shark Week, and oh God, Fred just loves sharks. I mean, he talks about them endlessly. Right, so. right, right. But I wonder if the situation of a story narrative going along with the shark attacks might be the uh, 
the linchpin of that whole entire like yeah i'm not a, I'm not a big fan of sharks anymore <laughs> exactly exactly so yeah my daughter is one of her favorite movies was soul surfer the story of beth oh yeah Hamilton, yeah got her arm bitten off yeah so she grew up with that one as with bethany hamilton as one of her heroes so they were watching shark attack movies since they were little girls but a couple years back i was like you guys have to see jaws like you know we have to watch the original the og shark movie and mm-hmm. yeah all the kids loved it all got freaked out by the water after as they should but and yeah again, absolutely yeah it. and it's again a movie that we probably all saw the first time when we were really, really probably young too movie. young to have seen that movie because it mm-hmm. was on well i know i saw it on tv for the first time um i think i saw it on like one of those you know back in the day the super channel or whatever it was that 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 sh- the hbo version of what yeah. we got in canada and all that sort first of thing. choice super channel first choice super channel that's it yes it was first choice super <laughs> channel yes exactly and uh yeah exactly i was, I was like you trevor there's that hesitation of going into a big body of water. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know about this situation, but uh, like yeah, you take no. that step and that other foot's like, nope. Yeah, no, okay, yeah exactly. Yeah, then, yeah. Well, yeah, it's just so. because it's just because it's so set in reality too. There's nothing mystical about the creature. We just get all the information yeah. of why sharks are the way sharks are, and then when the shark, I mean, later on, movies become farcical and whatnot by the time yeah. we get to the revenge it's sort of like a silly <laughs> story but the first yeah one, the first that first one is just spectacular and, and it was because of the technical issues they had with yeah, the, the yeah exactly shark bruce that they had spielberg had to make the decision of let's show the shark less which you know? worked perfectly for the movie and yeah it did. it's and just gonna yeah yeah most horror movies now kind of follow that they don't show you the the creature the monster right from the get-go they kind of hint at it and then yeah they'll have their big jump scare reveal and like oh there it is in all its glory yeah exactly yeah jaws couldn't do that they couldn't yeah. jump out and say here it is in all its glory because the damn thing kept sinking yeah exactly yeah yeah well it's like uh the xenomorph and uh really scott's alien it's very it takes so long to actually introduce the actual final xenomorph into the story. And when you see it, it's very briefly there and it's more terrifying knowing that it's out there and not being able to be seen much like the shark. It just, Mm -hmm. it's just so beautiful. And again, uh, John Williams score. I mean, so simple that track you, yeah. Two simple notes. Yeah, exactly. But it just gets your heart racing. Have you guys read Scott McCloud's understanding comics? I think no years back. It's basically a comic book yep, right about making comics. And one of the great panels is showing how you commit murder in your mind between panels. So it's just two panels. If I remember right, it's like a knife up in the air. Yes. One panel, yes. Another yeah. panel of like a silhouette ah, or something like that. And he's saying how basically you just killed the person in between those panels. Your brain is the one that committed the murder. It's and that's what happens. Psycho. Yeah. He yeah. had, you know, you see the knife come up and then you see the blood swirling around the drain. Yeah. So for and these kind of horror need. movies, the more that happens in your own head, the more you're an accomplice to because, it, the more I, it brings out your own fears. Who's it? I just remember who's there's a famous author that said people have a better imagination than they can write than, yeah. than, than, than any writer can write because the fucked up shit we can put together in our heads will far exceed what I, they could ever show in the theater. Right. And another thing you had mentioned was the um, uh, Indianapolis. Have you mm-hmm. guys ever 
listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast. I don't know if I've read that, but no, I've, I don't think I've, so. I've watched a couple of, of documentaries about the Indianapolis and okay. Dan Carlin does uh, these history podcasts. Some of them are like can be three to five hours long, but he has a little mini episode of the nightmares of the Indianapolis. So anybody who's interested in that story, um, go ahead and listen to Dan Carlin's hardcore history addendum uh, episode five nightmares of the Indianapolis. But the way he tells the story is absolutely terrifying. So if you like things like shark attacks, um, yeah. Yeah. Listen to that. For anyone's interested, the the quick thing. So 890 people went into the water, 316 were pulled out. So they faced exposure, dehydration, saltwater poisoning. But the official record is of the 890 that went in and the three of the 316 that came out, the rest, sharks got most of them. And I, and the way Robert Shaw describes that, it just, it's a terrifying way to go. And again, oh. the delivery of those, I mean, the amount of the classic actors that they involve in this movie too, just brings such gravitas to the actual movie itself. It, it makes it more of a realistic feel to it. And that's why the terror seems so realistic and why we don't want to step into the water anymore. <laughs> All right. So apparently, uh, Robert Shaw was was uh, drunk about ninety nine percent of the time. Yeah, apparently, was, apparently, yeah. yeah. I, I was reading through a lot of the different, uh, you know, trivia behind the film. Yeah, and actually, his speech Shaw wrote himself because the scriptwriter and eventually were going back and forth about what they wanted and what they don't. And so he's he was tired of trying to memorize their rewrite. So he that you know went out after filming, wrote it down. Next morning, showed it to them, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, we go with that." And the emotion he puts in his voice is just yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. All right, Troy, what's your number five? All right, my number five um, basically uh, coincides with the uh, number one song of the uh, time that the movie was released. Um, it's uh, Phil Collins' "Susu Studio." Um, it basically is a movie that we've already talked about, and I'm pretty sure is on everyone's top ten somewhere on all that sort of thing. Uh, the movie was released the July third. Uh, 1985 uh i personally was 14 at the time um and this is probably the first like early in the movie watching period where it was probably one of the first movies that i saw without my parents originally my parents did we did later on see the actual movie with my parents and all that but i and a couple of friends on the saturday that the movie came out uh, went to see this movie. Uh, it basically 116 minutes long, had a budget of $19 million. And uh, uh, to date, it has pulled in uh, $388.8 million. Um, it became the biggest uh, box office uh, draw of uh, the year of 1985. We're talking about Back to the Future, directed by Robert Zemeckis. And of course, starring Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Kristen Glover, and... and so forth and so on. Um, this is, I mean, it's it's a classic. Not only is it a classic sci-fi film, it is um, the resurgence of the time travel sci-fi movie. Uh, it's comedic. It's uh, beautifully acted. It's beautifully shot. I mean, there's no denying that it looks so good. The idea of time travel and running into the paradox of what happens when you meet your parents 
when they're your age that you are currently and what what sort of mistakes can ensue and as we find out from our protagonist of uh um, michael j fox playing marty mcfly he is um basically un untwining his whole entire existence by not allowing his parents to meet the way they did originally in the original timeline so um this movie is just uh, so full of it's 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 never it's 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 a smart sci-fi film that does not overshoot its audience it lays everything out beautifully it's not um there's no overdone exposition and all that sort of thing anything that is that is needed to know is basically just rabbled off in the mouth from either christopher lloyd in either the present day of like 1985 or the back in the 1955 version of uh, Doc Brown and all that. So it's it's just a fun, fun movie. And like I said, it was impactful because it was like one of the first movies that I saw on my own, uh, under my own volition to go see it and all that. Um, I was a fan of Michael J. Fox because I, our family was big fans of, uh, of, of uh, Family Ties. Uh, we knew of Christopher Lloyd because of Taxi. I mean, uh, the doc brown looked just like an older version of jim ignatowski so it was like it was a perfect perfect thing uh leah thompson we we'd seen in other things and all that and it was just um it was just a fun movie and all that uh it impacted me in my life to a point where um i do a lot of cosplay as marty mcfly i have a couple of the marty mcfly costumes and all that i have the original the life uh the life jacket outfit i have the something inconspicuous from uh, back to the future 2 um which is basically just the, the the leather jacket and the black chucks and whatnot so it's a nice simple friggin uh ray-ban sunglasses and all that it's a great simple costume and all that uh but yeah it's it was just um an impactful movie which also hit at a time when that movie wasn't expected to be now we know all the story of how like uh, bob gale and um robert zemeckis had like shipped it around to like 20 different studios before this thing got made uh it went through so many different iterations we know about the casting and all that we know how they wanted to get michael j fox for the role to begin with but they ended up uh ending up with um why am I blanking on his name all of a sudden? I should have said it. Eric as as started. Thank you, Eric Stoltz. He started uh, with Eric Stoltz. They realized their uh, mistake. They then begged for reshoots and then had to work Michael J. Fox into a program where he was like shooting Monday through Friday on Family Ties and then worked on Back to the Future on the weekends and like slept and in between. Sorry, what? And evenings. And evenings, yeah, exactly. There was a, not a lot of night shoots, especially to get caught up for losing three weeks of uh, footage and all that. Um, but uh, lo and behold, everything that all the problems that the movie went through to get made came out to this spectacular thing that wowed the world. I mean, it, it exploded from day one. I mean, it made household names of everyone that was involved. I mean, even those that didn't know who Leah Thompson was knew who Leah Thompson was now. Uh, anyone who was unaware of Christopher Lloyd now knew who Christopher Lloyd was. Uh, I mean, the word 
gigawatts being put into the lexicon. I mean, it 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 doesn't mean anything, but it does now. You it's one point twenty one gigawatts flux capacitor. Exactly. Yeah. All these it's like a parsec. It's like a parsec. Exactly. A flux capacitor, like a parsec. Um, again, it spawned sequels. It spawned an animated TV series. It spawned video games. It spawned comic books. It spawned a universal ride, and it actually even spawned a musical that opened up in uh, England in well 2020 which we reported on on one of our previous episodes as well briefly and all that but uh yeah so I mean it is a such a great impactful film that again uh like the people involved with it like Robert Zemeckis fantastic know all of his work uh Spielberg also bringing it to the forefront being a champion of this movie because uh, it's an Amblin production and all that so I mean there was no doubt that this was going to be a good movie I just don't think anyone was really expecting in 1985 for this movie to be as big of an impact on culture as it actually is I mean to this day it's still people are still talking about the movie and it's always finding new new younger audiences that discover the exact same thing because it's a movie that while it is set in the time that it is it is a timeless movie because you can as as long as because when the movie starts off you learn enough about the 80s to know that this is when the movie takes place so when he goes either direction anywhere in the storyline you know that in 2015 you know 2015 is not like the 2015 from 1985 but because of what you've seen of 1985 in that movie, you know that that's the 2015 of that. So yeah, flying car. Exactly. We don't we don't get the flying cars. No, we don't. We don't have our hoverboards. We don't have. Yeah, we don't have self drying jackets. Yeah, auto lace sneakers. Self drying. Like, yeah, like, exactly. Well, technically, technically, they have been making strides in the auto lace feature sort of thing recently. But I'd uh, rather they put strides into the flying cars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so because of the impact that I've on my life, that's uh, why it's uh, number five. And again, it's like Trevor said, there are certain movies that when they hit in there, they stick and it's kind of hard to sludge them and all that. And I believe everyone else in their in their list in their list are going to agree that number four, three, two and one are going to be hard to shift around. You might have a little bit of wiggle room on one or two of those. But yeah, we'll, these movies are probably going to be hard set and no matter what list you make, no matter when they are in the future, more than likely, unless something blows you out of the water sort of thing in the next, the next thing that comes out, like, you know, maybe the fifth matrix is the movie that would be able to do it. I don't think so, Tim, but uh, yeah. So that's my number five, back to the future. Back to the future is what back to the future is one of these ones where I'm always excited. Anytime they do a reunion. Like was it yeah. Jimmy Kimmel had mm-hmm. the thing where they come back on stage and yeah. are doing their bits or anytime there's a commercial with them. I'm always so excited to see those actors reprise those roles, especially because of the whole time travel aspect of it. Yeah. To, you know, because of course they do the fake makeup in the original movies, but to see them at the current age now reprising the roles yeah. gets me excited every single time, like more than just about any other reunion between cast members of a film. This is one that gets me every time. One of the things I really like the most about this, the uh, Back to Future stuff, is uh, the fact that uh, they, they're they not, uh, 
like the Shrek movies, for example, set in sort of a you know fantasy world, but like they're they're throwing '90s pop references at everything. It it you know you you could watch it now, but it's like oh oh yeah, that was big in the '90s. No uh, uh, okay, but like when you're watching something like Back to the Future, the 1985 uh, like period time period works because it's a it's essentially now a period piece. Yeah, like anytime you see yeah, something, exactly, go, yeah. you're watching like a movie from the 20, 1920s. You're seeing something from like you know, whatever. As long as they're keeping that that suspension of a belief that you are in that time period, it's gonna it's gonna be one of those those cl- classic movies. It's gonna stick around. It it doesn't matter. Like it's like watching Warner Brothers cartoons. The jokes are classic. They're not yeah. dating the, the yeah. It's, yeah. It's, they're referring to old stuff, but I mean. It's not trying to be like hip and cool. It's simply refer- referring to the that that time period. Yeah, there's a uh, so I, I, there's a, a book Mary got me that talks all about Back to the Future, the making of, and stuff. That, and there's a great little blurb in there about why they use the DeLorean, and what it was is Bob Gale, one of the producers, one of the writers. He was approached by Ford because Ford was like, "We'll pay you seventy five thousand dollars towards the budget of the film if you use a Ford Mustang." Gail's instant response was Doc Brown doesn't drive a fucking Mustang right there. It's just that, that was, that ended the conversation. And the thing is they were sitting in a boardroom and there's a representative yeah, of Ford yeah. there and they're like, we'll pay you 75,000 if you use a Mustang. And Bob Gale just stood up and said, Doc Brown doesn't drive a fucking Mustang. And he left, left the meeting and everyone's else kind of like looking at each other like, Oh, okay. Uh, let's finish the meet. Let's uh, end the meeting. Cause there's, we have nothing else to talk about. And yeah, and I, I mean, the DeLorean, such an iconic vehicle now. Mm-hmm. And it was chosen because, I mean, DeLoreans came out in the early 80s, 80, 81. By 85, the company was dead. The vehicle, there weren't many of those vehicles out. They were able to get their hands on a couple of them. And it is since, you know, you show someone a DeLorean, they instantly, oh, back to the future. Yeah. And again, yeah, it's such an iconic thing that uh, we got from this movie. And uh, yeah, Bob Gale is such a, a, a stand-up for this whole entire thing. Like, I love the fact that there's somewhere written out there that no one is allowed to touch being a remake of Back to the Future until both him and uh, Robert Zemeckis have passed on. And even then, it's probably going to be a really it'll tough a thing fight. to do. Yeah, it'll be quite the fight to try and... Because, I mean, if any other movie, like, really, because any other, from that point on, time travel movies play with the Back to the Future. I mean, look at our other series that we enjoyed, the Marvel movies. They, how they basically said falsities of the Back to the Future. That's not how time travel actually works and all that. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and the fact that it's Scott Lang is the one, what, you, you mean Back to the Future is not, not real sort of thing? It's <laughs> like, it's just... It, it's so part of the culture. And again, it's 35 years on. I mean, we're just like 30, what are we at? 30, we're, all, we're coming up on 40 years soon, right? That's so 85. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in so, 2025, yeah. it'll be 40 years. Yeah, exactly. And it's, again, it's just as watchable way back in 85 as it is now. And oh, yeah, again, my kids love it. Absolutely yeah. love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, again, just one more thing about it. Uh, well, two more things about it. But um, 
at a fan expo a couple of years ago, there was a reunion where it was Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd and Leah Thompson and uh, uh, oh no, Tom, who plays Biff. Oh no, why am I blanking on his uh, name? Tom Wilson. It is Wilson. Okay. Yeah. Um, they all came together and did photo op, and it was like a stupid amount of money to be in a picture with all four of them and all that. But me and two other buddies, we split the cost and we got dressed up in our Back to the Future costumes and we had a picture of the the four actors and us there and whatnot. And I've actually gone through the the process one time of uh, editing Back to Future into a linear movie starting all the way back in uh, 1885 and editing up to 2015. I have a picture of me in the DeLorean. Yeah, we have a video of somewhere Adrian and I actually in the DeLorean. We're actually dressed up. She's dressed up as Doc Brown and I'm dressed up as Marty McFly. So, yeah. I was sitting in the basically the hero car. Oh, the hero car. Green used hero car. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. But it it was it's 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 honestly it's a real trip to sit in in that car because it is a little bit different than what you think like it's going to be inside. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so moving on, we're going to go on to uh, one of the other things we're going to be talking about, and we're going to be talking about the uh, Disney offering, uh, Disney Plus offering of uh, Book of Boba Fett. Now, we have actually talked Spy about... Spy Kids 4. Spy Kids 4, yes. <laughs> uh, we have actually talked about episode one a couple of episodes ago, but we haven't been uh, together uh, as a group to be able to go over uh, the uh, episode two and episode three, but um, we're going to do that now, and um, so... As we are right now, as we're going to cover both episodes together, instead of doing them individually, we might as well just talk at what we know from the first three episodes. We'll just do it that way. We'll just encompass what we've seen so far and all that. So who out there is actually enjoying this series so far? I mean, I'm just going to automatically say I totally am because, again, I am a huge Star Wars fan. I am a Boba Fett fan. I love the uh, the main character, the main cast they've got and all that. I love the extras that they're showing us. But... What do you guys got to say and all that? I'll say that I was blown away by the first two episodes and I'm starting to get a little bit of cold feet after episode three. Uh, I think they kind of jumped the shark. In fact, I wish the scooter kids were driving down Tatooine and there was literally a rubber (laughs) shark that they were jumping over. Um, So I think there's still room for redemption, but that's where I'm at right now. I'm I'm very similar with Mike. One and two, like two has been my absolute favorite episode. My kids um, say the same thing. Three, the flashbacks, as limited as they were, the Tuscan Raider uh, storyline, yeah, that was more fun. And then mm-hmm. we jumped to the present time, and yeah, it was good right up until we had the the, the Vespa crew, the Vespa Power Rangers. Yeah. Um, they bugged the hell out of me. Um, but the things is this: I, I know that we have a couple of other directors coming up with their episodes because there's four more episodes left. So I have a hope that this gets turned around for the better because yeah, the, the Vespa power Rangers really left a sour taste. Man. And, and the, the, the low speed chase was just the ridiculous. low speed, high speed chase. Yeah. The low speed, high speed. Uh, chase. There's, just there's looks... more, more, more of a sense of speed from the Zamboni scene in uh, Austin powers than there was in that. It looks like they shot it at the wrong frame rate. And then when they tried to play it back, it just looks so stilted. Like it, it didn't it, like, it, uh, it was, I, I thought it looked like court. a Spy Kids movie. Well, like it, I was watching it. This doesn't feel like Star Wars. This feels like Spy Kids, right? Like from the costumes, 
to the makeup, yeah. to the stunt action, to the weird way it was shot, to the mm-hmm. floatiness of the vehicles. And then when I saw who directed it, it's like, oh, well, yeah, that explains it. But it's funny because he directed the first episode, right? Yes, exactly. And the first and one was very strong. We did, get, yeah. we did get Danny Trejo as the Rancor. The Rancor. Yeah. That was pretty cool. That that was a redemption. And yeah. uh, some of the fight um, at the, you know, when he gets ripped out of the back to tank, that was kind of nice. Yeah. But yeah, um, all in all, season three or episode three, sorry, kind of left me a little sour, but I have hopes for next Wednesday for episode four. Um, but on the on the flip side, episode two blew me away. Yeah. Yeah. It was no, that was definitely yeah, yeah. awe inspiring. Yeah, right down to the right down to the using um, uh, Macquarie's original artwork to fill in scenes. I mean, it's amazing how good it looks because of that. Yeah, because oh, you so, see it, oh. it feels like Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, look, even I, with Luke's friends, um, you Cammy and yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I saw those costumes before I even realized who they were supposed to be. I was so impressed that there's these random humanoids that look like Star Wars characters. Like they're yeah, wearing yeah. outfits. It's like, that's yeah. exactly what it should look like. Yeah. So when, again, you get to the Spy Kids and the Power Rangers, it's like, why couldn't they get that design right? I, I think Anyways. what, what would have saved that chase is if he had blasted out of the city and then, you know, opened up the speeder to full speed and they had to open up the bikes to full speed. And you would have had a bit of a pod race sort of sequence instead yeah. of the running through Raiders of the Lost Ark with the escaping with the Ark in the truck, yeah. like and knocking just, over the aqueducts and trying to. Yeah, they could have been playing yakety sacks for the, the Benny Hill theme. That was definitely just as well. That's exactly that. The pacing of that totally looked like that. It was I, Keystone Cops. I would have loved to have seen them being more of a swoop gang than the like we saw the like i don't the colors made me feel like we're doing like uh, an american graffiti race movie like yeah. it totally was well, i mean one of them had like all the mirrors on it like those vet, exactly like the 60s yeah. Vespas. yeah it was just like and, and how, how they that even would did bother the... me if they were rusty and look like tattooing vehicles yeah. they, they were way too new. new yes yeah and i believe we had this conversation offline that yes those things there's no way those things would have been able to stay that clean on that desert of a planet because look nothing looks that shiny and new i mean the only thing that looked that shiny and new was friggin amadala's ship from episode one and yeah that's because it was just chrome chrome to begin with it now this landed and while they were out they probably had the guards out there polishing polishing exactly yeah (laughs) exactly Uh, what did you think they're polishing it well i gotta say i i i really enjoyed episode two or as i like to call it dancing with crab dragons um, yeah. <laughs> basically it, uh, it, it was, uh, it was a great, uh, sort of insight as to like seeing maybe how Boba Fett, uh, his, his, his morals, uh, changed from being like, just essentially someone who's going to just do it for the money to someone who was doing it for something greater. Uh, basically he, uh, he, the way he uh, stood up for the sand people, the way he was negotiating for them. Um, I think that, I think that's kind of leading into where, why, why he's, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's the, the daimyo position in, uh, that Jabba had before. And he's leading to uh, respect, not fear. And I do think Bib Fortuna had something to do with it, which will tie into why he assassinated him. Um, I, uh, I loved it. Like when, uh, when the twins came, 
you know, with the with, with the procession and, you know, even with the hover uh, platform, you know, the, the the slaves were still like, oh, they're so heavy. You know, one of them thinking, don't we have hover technology somewhere? Somewhere? Um, now, honestly, the problem I had with that sequence is it really showed how they can't do huts, CG huts. No. What I think is with a planet that bright, you know, I know they're non canon more, but like the um, Nalsharda, like the hut world is mm-hmm. dark. Yeah. So there should yeah. have been a big canopy over them, putting them in shadows. Mm-hmm. That would have made it work. But having them out in the bright sunlight and then like he's, he's having the mouse and he's wiping himself and, and the, 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 the female twins, they should have herself, a canopy yeah. over that. So yeah, totally, yeah. they're in comfort in the shade. And those poor bastards. But mind you, uh, did you guys did you guys know who uh, Black Chrysanthemum was? I did when he I showed did, up. Yes. Yeah. Uh, like the actual character. Yes. Yeah, the I've actual character. character. Yeah, before. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which basically, but, as soon as he steps around the corner, I'm like, oh my god, that's right off the page of the comic. Like that was yeah. so beautiful done, and the like the fact that there's even that scar in his in his scalp, which is fantastic. Like, like yeah. However, well, you guys remember me from the Star Wars role playing days when I played the Wookiees? Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was absolutely like beside myself when I saw yeah. him step out. And uh, while yes, I think we've talked exactly what uh, pretty much all the, the pretty much the weaknesses of episode three. Uh, I still love the part where uh, he basically let uh, Black uh, Crescenton go. go. And yeah. you know that's going to come back, and all of a sudden, like oh, for sure, yeah, Boba Fett's got his very own personal Wookiee now. No, yeah. you what I wanted to see in that moment because he's down in the Rancor pit. Mm-hmm. So if Chrysanthemum was the new Rancor, that would have been oh, awesome. like Chewbacca in Solo. Yeah, he's just down there. So anytime someone goes down there, this yeah, yeah, dude the just rips him apart. The the it's yeah. like you know, if he comes out eventually, fine. But how cool would it be to see yeah, the Wookiee ripping arms off in the Rancor pit? Now, what they could have done with that whole entire fight sequence when the the gang, the mod squad or the Vespa squad or all that yeah. are fighting him as well, he could have totally torn off one of their arms. Yeah. He could have totally torn one of their arms. Yes, exactly. Either they could he could have torn off an actual cybernetic arm or he could have torn off a real arm. And then later on, you see him, that character getting an actual cybernetic arm that would have been brilliant that i wasn't really impressed especially the main guy with the eyeball that looks so halloween like the first season star trek next generation just doesn't look that yeah the prosthetics on all of them was just kind of like the only one that actually looked good was the girl because her elbow is a rope like uh yeah it's a, a green sleeve yeah yeah it's the elbow is a droid elbow but the rest is flesh like below Even, it and above it is it looks kind of neat because it squeezes down to the point where the but still even then it felt very cyberpunk to me yeah but again cyberpunk is a different aesthetic than the yes Star Wars exactly universe. yeah for sure uh, it, was, it was boring if they sh- if they shot their sharper image basically yeah, yes exactly exactly i think there was a a big misstep in this in episode three that i'm hoping they either glance over or just keep on trucking and make it better with episode four because yeah I, I i watched three with meredith because now she's watching it too and uh yeah it was <laughs> uh i was just like oh god oh ooh. and the second she pulled up in that little blue vespa with all the the 
side yeah when they were that v formation when they were going up and like oh please no like yeah i was just like oh that works for x-wing fighters not for vespas no yeah (laughs) no yeah Yeah, all we needed was some real bounty hunters like there's no reason for these kids to be in this no it should honestly it should have been it the crew it should have been the rogues gallery it should have been the yeah yeah exactly yeah um, do we think we're going to see any of those characters? Do we know, like, because we got a total of seven episodes, so we're not quite at the halfway mark. Next week is our halfway part. What do you yeah, guys they, think? It'd be God, foolish if so. they didn't. Their things is they're they're playing the 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 casting list so close to the vest. They don't update it until Wednesday morning, when the episode's released anyway. That they update. Oh, here's some other co-stars, and oh, here's some additional people. Yeah, exactly. It, they're playing it so close, so they don't, you won't know who's coming up. I pray to God we get a, an aged Dengar, or one of the one of the original bounty hunting crew from the you know from Empire. But I and I keep hearing that we're supposed to have a big Luke Skywalker moment in this. Like, uh, what's that going to be? Do you guys know what it actually might be? Did you guys read any of the rumors of what it might be? I heard something about Han Solo at some point. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, basically what it is. It looks like we're going to get a again a de-aged like. Like they did with with uh, Luke Skywalker and all that, and of course, you're probably going to have Mark Hamill do the voice of Han Solo because he can do a fantastic Harrison Ford imitation, and all that. And it, you might get it. You it'll probably just be a brief little thing because it's something that happens after Return of the Jedi, and Han then has his whole entire life. Like 30 years later, we catch up. Why would he mention about meeting up with Boba Fett afterwards sort of thing and all that. So there is a good chance yeah. that that's what we're going to have. And if they do that, I hope it's the story point that can cover it. Like it makes sense because Luke well, Skywalker made perfect sense. Han he, Solo he, showing up. Like, he why? could be looking for the Millennium Falcon at this point. You know, because that was that whole thing is they searched all those different planets. I mean, they talked about it in the... In oh, the I see what Force you're saying. Awakens. Oh, right, right. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Him yeah. And, and Chewie are looking for the Falcon. Yeah. Because after the Battle of Endor, you know, it just, they lost it and they don't know where it is. And so it wasn't until The Force Awakens they finally found it on, you know, Jakku. So, yeah. Yeah. It was nice seeing, um, it was nice seeing um, uh, Stephen Root, that's for sure, as the the watermonger, um, I believe Mm -hmm. is uh, Lortha Peel. And it, it took me a second to realize who he was and all that and sort of thing like, why does that voice sound familiar? And um, but it was nice to see him as the and I mean I I Amy like, Sedaris again was nice. Uh, yes, it was. Yes, yes. It was a very droids and like, all that. Like yeah, it was. Lincoln, you missed yeah, moment, yeah. but it ties right back into the Mandalorian. Yeah. So well, it's a, it's the same place, which is yeah. yeah do, you, so. do you guys recognize who eight d eight is voices? Um, it's uh, what's his one of the uh, guys Barry. from? Yeah, from um, what we do in the shadows. What, do you, what we do in the shadows, the yeah, IT yeah, crew, yeah. The crowd. Uh, yeah, right, IT uh, crowd. Yes, exactly. Disenchantment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, again, what they're doing for the look, the feel of it is kind of cool. It just unfortunately has, like like we said, we're, we're not a big Vespa fan, I guess, <laughs> from this situation. It no, just seems to be messed shiny. up. Way too, too shiny and too clean, yeah. Um, I do like the fact that these characters seem to be um, ex-imperials because they have the British accent. Because as we know, in the Star Wars universe, all the imperial <laughs> officers British. have British accents. So these are obviously descendants of former imperial officers is what I'm going to go with yeah. because of the British accent. But uh, 
yeah so but again the flashback stuff is all is so far the best like my favorite part of this the more we see of the tuscans is great uh the massacre we knew was coming sooner or later uh i like that we didn't see the uh the warrior princess among the among the yeah, dead we, just saw, we saw the leader we saw the little boy yeah but we um, didn't see um we didn't, yeah, we didn't see, see the one uh, who trained him the yeah do you think um, they're gonna do a full paul atreides i mean i'm fine if they rip off dune they've already done enough of it star wars ripping off dune as i say for the 17th time during this podcast Um, but i would like to see boba fett get the desert power like that's what i want to see happens with the tuscan raiders i want boba fett to have the tuscan army that's how he gets power with seeing the the um the pikes beginning to arrive right i could see him going to the desert finding the warrior princess and then through her getting the rest of the tuscan tribes to basically be his muscle for taking down the pikes yeah yeah exactly. with the camp getting destroyed that's where i was wondering if they're going to take it a different route if there were some survivors and they band together with the rest of them and now he has an army that'd be really cool but i hope yeah. they don't just drop that story element true true so. oh uh starting off episode three the bomar monk uh Yes. Oh, yeah. That, that was a great start to the episode. Also, and again, Phil Tippett animated, and it looked stop motion. Yeah, it and did. a buddy of mine actually so, built the model. So goddamn oh, really? beautifully. Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah, the nice little stutter that it had, sort of thing. I'm like, oh my god, it was the, so good. Even the fact the brain was kind of moving, and yeah. it, was, it was just yeah. like oh, yeah. I watched it like that is a hundred percent little little fluid physics magic. There. Yeah, yeah. And we got the return of the Gort, 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 the desert little eating yeah. burping uh, yes. thing yeah yes. desert yeah, toad yeah. that eats the, the desert toad thing. yeah that was also a nice i mean it's nice that they're giving us these these callbacks they're giving us like hey here you go here's some more stuff that you guys are gonna like and then that's we'll when it works it. best yeah it exactly yeah and then i then unfortunately it's the vespa crowd <laughs> it's just we just can't get past that i hope that I mean, I know we're going to be stuck with these characters for the duration of the show, or they wouldn't have made such a big deal well, of my the hope characters is being the, introduced. The warrior Tuscan warrior princess shows up on one of the the speeder bikes mm-hmm. and looks at their Vespas, and I hope just, just, even just a head shake, just like <laughs> <laughs> just something yeah. like that would be like, yes, fucking Vespas, yeah, get on a real speeder bike. All right, so moving on from that, I believe we're all done with Boba Fett. I think we've got it. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're still looking forward to the series because there's so much more that we could do, and they always throw us a, a curveball that we don't expect. I mean, I didn't know we were going to get the uh, the gift that was offered to Boba Fett that was offered to him and all that. And the I fact that he rather had a Wookiee. But no, I like. I didn't even think of the Wookiee. The Wookiee is a great idea. It would, but that would have been a a fantastic idea but what well, is interesting if he's going to be writing a rancor around yes that's, that'll give that vibes exactly. to the star wars holiday special and as soon as they mention the sisters of dothmar i'm like yes hands in the air i love this story <laughs> so i mean there was enough in episode three that made me like i mean the mighty Morphin power rangers was my problem with this episode yep. If they had been dirty swoop bikes, I would have been so. I would have, yeah. The cybernetic and dirty costumes, fine. Dirtier yeah. costumes. They look like they just like stepped out of an H and M. I mean, yep. they. I don't know. And I don't know how that got through 
the decision board? Like, how did somebody it's gotta, get the okay it's, on that? I can only see, I can only think that it's going to have some sort of later on why these guys are so clean, why these guys are so in a desert planet where water is scarce. Why are they all so shiny and all that? I mean, they were even complaining how it was so hard to get water on this planet. That was part of their storyline for being introduced. Like, who the hell's washing your clothes? Yeah. Like, there's a reason why everyone is wearing browns and like, like, beiges on this planet because if it gets a little dirty it's fine no i mean don't get me wrong i love that i love that the uh watermonger was the staple guy from office space yeah exactly yeah steven root yeah exactly yeah yeah they they took my water they took my water they took my water they took my water i don't want the 500 credits i want my water I mean, it, it is the storyline is a little a, like role play sort of thing. Like, go to this person to find out your next task, to go to this next person, go to your next yep. t- to find out your yeah, next yeah, task, and all that. Very much sort of doing thing. a lot of like the find find and fetch tasks. Yeah, and, exactly. How many times has Fett walked back and forth from his palace? I know. To the oh town? my god. Ah, I do. I uh, another thing. I love how he said, "Hey, put the Gamorian in my back to tank and all that." And then I didn't even think about it. I'm like, "Oh yeah, wait." Boba Fett probably had his own room at Jabba's if he worked with Jabba enough. That was that's probably is actually Boba Fett's room that he's staying in. Hence the reason why there's a Bo- the Boba Fett sized tank. All right, so um, moving on from that, we're going to move on to the other offering that we were given by HBO Max, and that is uh, the DC series that was uh, conceived, written, directed, produced by James Gunn, and that is peacemaker how fucking happy are you guys that this series is out there i've I been mean, saying this all along since we've seen the trailers yeah. peacemaker is the hero that the world needs right now yeah yeah this is a spectacular now again it's on hbo max and you have to have a subscription to be able to watch this and all that but um do yourself a favor and uh fantastically uh, HBO dropped the first three episodes on in one day. It's going to from there on. It's going to be weekly, but the first three episodes were dropped all in one, and it was a spectacular introduction to um, basically expand on the world that the we were introduced to. Alone, oh, grabs you yeah. by the ears and drags you into the series. It is yeah. one of the best you... openings to a TV show ever that... of all time. Greatest. Ever kicking and screaming, you are going to enjoy this at gunpoint. You exactly. There is no way that you can't enjoy it. I mean, unless you're easily offended, then why the hell are you watching? Yeah, why are you watching this? A, a series from the? I mean, if if you were offended by the Suicide Squad, there's no reason that you're going to be enjoying this series and all. Yeah, you. This basically takes the Suicide Squad and ups the volume to thirteen, and just screams in your face for the whole entire and the nice thing is they're full episodes they're like 48 to 53 minutes all they're like fully packed and they are fully packed there is i do there is no lull in this at all and that's again james gunn's doing it's the way that he writes it's the way that he directs i mean he is so good he's such an amazing creator of characters that everyone comes to life within the first couple of seconds of meeting them and it is just 
a vision and a pleasure to watch this series. I think uh, I think uh, James Gunn has almost like a like a carte blanche to uh, just say, "Hey, uh, Mr. Pro- music producer, I want that song." And they're like, "Yes, you may have this." Like every song he picks yeah. fits yeah. absolutely like perfect. Sometimes yeah. I almost think it's overdone. It's almost becoming cliche that he puts these just random pop songs or historic songs and crams them into sequences. But every time I think, oh, is this going to be another one? But then it fits. It's like, oh, this is kind of good. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it. Yeah, you're all, and it, uh, yeah, sometimes you're thinking, oh, what's he now going to put in? And let's, let's get some like regular music and all that, which actually this is very well orchestrated. The non-needle dropping mm-hmm. music is beautifully done and it it makes like the actual, and they're, again, it's so beautifully written. The suspenseful m- moments are very suspenseful. Like the assassination in the third, ep- second episode, third episode, second third. episode, third episode. Yes, sorry. I. I, I haven't got quite there yet. That's why I just basically, is, yeah, there's, you well, know, there's going to be an assassination. It, it does infer that. Right yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, but there's no, there's no needle drop music in it. It's all very well orchestrated and that it's so well built on tension, all that. And the and action the mixture sequ- of the comedy in that moment, yeah. the comedy of it, but the intensity and the character development, exactly like the yes. things that are happening in that sequence. Yeah, it's yeah. genius because yeah. considering it's something so dark. Okay, let's back up. Let's back up to uh, freaking well, Peacemaker getting his ass handed to him. Um, that fight sequence is so okay. First of all, I, I like the fact that in the closing credits, they actually list separately John Cena's stunt double and all that because he went through a crap load of shit in that fight sequence. And I love the fact that. James Gunn's got it edited to a point where it's it like pops from like stuntman to John Cena doing like like and then like the stuntman falls down with his head turned away from the the camera sort of thing and then it the camera pops to a close-up of John Cena as he turns around from the exact same position and all that sort of thing dude to have your body look as friggin similar to John Cena's as it is and not really I mean, you could obviously tell the guy going through the wall is not John Cena. I mean, John Cena would probably want to do that stunt, but there's no way they're going to be able to afford the insurance on John Cena going through a wall. So they have to get a stuntman and that's his job. A guy in his whitey tighties being thrown through a wall. And it's just, it's just such a pleasure to see because not only is it a well done stunt, it's so well shot and it allows for character moments to happen too. And it's a freaking fight. The lead up oh. to the fight is even a moment where friggin' Cena is singing in, into a vibrator, some 80s hair metal music and all that. And, and it's all just, the knife oh. attacks that happen in it. Because yes. you, like, you're expecting a big superhero fight, but the amount of times he gets stabbed, you're like, oh, oh, ow, oh. And you feel it. And again, you've seen so many of these types of movies and so many of these types of fights. I felt more in this one. It, it just seems so brutal. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it captivated me. So for one of the first big fights of the series, I was sold on it right away. And that 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 finisher, that, that fight too, the Sonic Blast. Yeah. It's like, it's like oh, it's just going to like knock her down and throw her away. Oh, no, she, she was flayed. 
oh, oh God. But how it affected everything around it too. All the cars were thrown all over the place. I'm like, oh, that is a sonic crash. Yeah. Yeah. Now backing that up, meeting Peacemaker's dad. Yes. Yeah. And then when he goes to the the door and types in the code and the dimensional closet, which is holds his workroom. That is fantastic. I love that. I love the fact that his father makes his armor and all that. That is just ah. Was anything like that in the Peacemaker comics? Because I had read Peacemaker in Checkmate, but I had never seen anything like that. So I don't know. I don't remember seeing any James Gunn invention or if this is canon somewhere. I don't know, but it it was awesome. I like the fact that different helmets have different powers, and the fact that. In the post credit scenes, there's like, this one gives you skates. Why, why would you ask? Why would you toughen you up? Every, every, every man needs to have scabies at least once. <laughs> it's just like, what? And then we find out more about the dad mm-hmm. as the episodes progress, and you're just like, oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, his, his dad is not a good man. Um, and again, it's the another part of the story is his, his peacemaker has to deal with the fact that. He has a different, like people have a different perspective of him than he has of himself sort of thing. Yeah. And oh my God, how, I mean, we knew it was going to be cool, but how fucking beautiful is Eagly? That's amazing. <laughs> That's a oh my God. God. Eagly. I wanted to see Red Wing like that, but Eagly <laughs> is such a great character in this. It's so good. Even when the head's out the window like a dog. Yes, exactly. Going. With the tongue sticking out. Yeah, that's so great. <laughs> I mean, hug. they could have cheesed it so hard with like with like animatronic wings, like like doing doing that awkward, you, you know it's fake kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I, it but just felt like a like a real eagle hugging me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Dad, I can't reach my camera. Take a picture. Yeah, and it's just so. I mean, it does look like uh, some of it is a practical. Uh, um, puppet and all that which which is fantastic and all that but the way the it's so difficult to tell I mean you can tell during the hug there's a little bit of a like there's the eye contact doesn't quite sort of line up in some shots and all that sort of thing which is understandable you don't want a actor that close to an actual live animal sort of thing but it just looks so and it's so entertaining too it's done uh, so well considering it's a tv show as well yes exactly like well, the I effects mean, and the character and so much personality like that mm-hmm. kind of stuff is hard enough to animate but to get that much personality out of a bird that's so likable yeah it's amazing well it is also it is also hbo uh, budget i mean yeah. And it's James Gunn doing an HBO DC. So you got a little more, I'm pretty sure he has a little more scratch in it and all that sort of thing. But again, this is a fantastic ride. I mean, oh, <laughs> um, I mean, for, I, go on, sorry, Gavin, go I, on I, I'll admit, I'll admit, I, I, I enjoyed uh, James Gunn's uh, The Suicide Squad a lot, mm-hmm. especially compared to the original version. Like, I don't I, I don't recall if they they're just kind of hand waving the the old one uh, sort of like don't don't pay attention to that this one's better uh, but it really it really sold me more so on the, the you know that that uh, that that group dynamics thing and uh, you know the, the the supporting cast for the Suicide Squad really made that work well in the movie and to see them come back in Peacemaker. Uh, I think is 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 great because you've got the you've got all these all these characters you know that like like, fate, uh, like Sharpie Marker guy or whatever he whatever he's calling him 
like you know every single one of the characters it feels unique and different and so i i i'm i'm super excited for this show this is this is this is going to be a fun show harcourt is one that i didn't even really notice in suicide squad no uh, but she steals the show in this she totally does, and it, yes. it's amazing and yeah. even the dance sequence that cracks me up because all the other characters are ridiculous doing the dance she's an odd one because she's very attractive but she's got the stoic face she's a hard-ass character but she's doing this goofy dance it's like you watch that in the introduction like, what in the hell yeah. is going on yeah so that was a fun character and then the other one vigilante I, he mm-hmm. completely stole the show for me. Like yeah. I wasn't sure how this character was going to work from the trailers, but seeing him in the show and the fact he's a proper superhero, like he doesn't take the mask off ever. Yeah, exactly. He has a yeah. secret yeah. identity. Yeah, like this is completely different than the Marvel heroes, where you know, yeah, <laughs> if you do that enough, yeah, they won't blow your <laughs> yeah, face. Yeah, you won't be able to. <laughs> Yeah, but I the think Marvel we just heroes. Spoiled a joke for Gavin. Did we spoil uh, a joke for Gavin? It, it you won't you spoil did, it. but I mean, once this is over, I'm yeah, probably gonna no. jump right back. Okay, good, 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 good. Yeah. But the fact that Spider-Man <laughs> takes his damn mask off so much that he has to get Doctor Strange to alter the fabric of the universe. Boba you know, Fett uh, takes his helmet off every chance he gets. Oh, I know. Like Boba Fett might as well get nanotech, where he could just hit the button and it disappears because he talks so much with it off. But here you have a hero with a secret identity and a yeah. mask. He's, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. I miss that of all the Marvel movies. Like, I want more of that. Mm-hmm. So I hope that they keep doing that with this. Oh, and another thing with this that I have to say is forced diversity always pisses me off. Right. And right at the start with uh, Amanda Waller's daughter, right. I was like, oh my God, are they going to shove this stuff down our throats again? But once I found out it was Amanda Waller, what's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Amanda, yeah, Amanda Waller's daughter. daughter. Yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly it's like, oh, that's actually a good character point because it fits with this dynamic of the story. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's yeah, cool. Yeah. And then you have a diverse cast, but it feels natural. Like yeah. it doesn't feel like they're cramming it down your throat. It's like, no, these are just really good characters. So that's really cool. And so they're also playing the whole opposite side, like you with Peacemaker's father, you know, like how much more brutally racist and horrible can you be? Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, And yeah. then you have these other characters playing off of that. Mm-hmm. So it's a way to bring that into the storyline and make it interesting and make it it's like it's an actual story point. So I loved everything about that. So that made me happy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And again, it just shows how well of a writer, how good of a writer that James Gunn really is. And again, yeah, he the can fact take that, it to those dark places. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And still and, make you laugh. It's weird. And how he can write an ensemble cast and nobody seems to be left behind. Yeah, I mean, very true. yeah. Like even the cops that they're introducing into it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, going back to that opening sequence, how everyone who is a main character in this show seems to be in the opening credits doing the dance. Sequence even the old that. man neighbor looking over yeah, the hedge. Exactly. Um, even the janitor. Yeah. Yeah. Janitor. Yeah. Even the janitor that we're introduced to in the very first uh, episode and all that yeah. sort of thing. Uh, it's just like, ah, um, it's nice to, um, be, I guess, surprised by nudity (laughs) was not expecting to see that gratuitous of nudity either. I mean, it was, it was definitely, um, ah, that, that hairdo that that woman had was just fantastic. (laughs) And 
Oh, it's just, it was just such a fun and okay. John Cena is fantastic in this role. I mean, he, I, I've been following his career since I've seen him debut in the WWE and just knowing that he can work the mic and talk off the top of his head sort of thing. Uh, this role is so beautiful for him because he allow it allows him to do what he's good at. And that is acting. And that's what a lot of the good wrestlers are. Those that can talk on the mic are usually the better ones, the ones that have the better personnel and all that. Sure, you can throw a guy a thousand feet or jump off the top of the Titan Tron and all that and through a table and all that. That's spectacular to do. But if you don't have the presence on the mic, you're not that well-rounded of a character. And there's a handful of them that are actually like that. Like Dwayne Johnson is the same way. He it works beautifully on the mic. And that's why he's got such the acting career that he has because he has the ability to do that. And John Cena can play the character. He can play the character. Yeah. And John Cena is just killing it in this role of, I mean, it's not his, it's not his first leading role, but it's his first huge leading role that is got so much behind it. It is a big project that he is working on. And I am so happy for him that this is him. And again, John Cena doing promotion for this whole entire thing where he shows up every place wearing the Peacemaker outfit. It's just so John it's not Cena. Outfit, it's uniform. It's <laughs> I apologize. That is right. It is a uniform. Yeah. And honestly, uh, I can't wait after, you know, with the promos, I got, I'm just waiting for him in the classroom. I want to see that whole sequence of him in the classroom. Oh, that's right. From the, from the preview we saw. I yes. forgot about that, that scene. It was so oh. good. So yeah, that's coming. That's coming soon. Yeah, and we know that at least two more episodes are directed by James Gunn. So, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think the, the very last one, like six and eight, are directed by Gunn. So, yeah. yeah since I can't watch this one with my kids, I had to at least <laughs> you show can't. them Why the not, trailer, right? or I had really? to show them the introduction. So I said, "Hey, kids, yeah, you can't watch this show, but watch this intro." And immediately, my boys are like, "Wait a second, that's John Cena." Because they're nice. big fans. So, nice. yeah, they're like, what the heck is this, Dad? Because they're all dancing around. It's like, it's hilarious, though, right? So, like, can't watch it, kids. And that yeah. dance sequence has gotten Adrian convinced to to watch the show as well. And it's... Uh, are we going to talk about the tidy whities Are we going to talk about that? Or are we just going to, like, uh, glance just, over just that? Just accept it and move forward. Who's wearing tidy whities So, yeah, we're just going to glance over. But again... The makeup for the show is fantastic. <laughs> uh, it's just, it, it's, it's, a, it's a delight to see. Hey, what is this, a pizza? No, I think that's someone's face. I mean, just, yeah. <laughs> so every Thursday. So we're going to have the Book of Boba Fett on Wednesday. Yep. Peacemaker on Thursday. On Thursday, exactly, yeah. So, all right. So I think we're going to wrap it up there, uh, kids, because uh, this has been fun. Uh, we're going to call it an evening at this point as we were wrapping up uh this particular show so i want to thank everyone for uh, joining us uh for our uh, return to this procedure again there's no guarantee when we're going to get uh, to be able to do this this was just something that uh, i think we all needed to do because it's it's been a little while and uh life's been uh, pretty hard and this is always fun to do because it's it's great gathering with friends to be able to talk shit about uh stuff that we really care about no talk about Which... stuff that we care shit no the shitty stuff that we care Anyways, we have fun doing this. All right. So, uh, so hopefully, uh, 
we'll come back soon and do something like this. We might drop some smaller little things. Maybe we'll do uh, just an episode about ooh, Book of Boba Fett episode four or Peacemaker episode four. Or, hey, now they're going to be at the same time. So um, so hopefully uh, next uh, time we see you, next uh, same bat time, same uh, spider channel. And uh, on the count of three, ooh, it's going to be a tough one. It's been a while, guys. Collective goodbye. One, two, three. Collective goodbye. You have just been listening to Geeking Off the Page with your hosts, Mike Kitchen, Gavin Burbage, Trevor Brown, and Troy Bowman. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and share. Also, if you could leave us a rating and comment, that would assist in allowing others to find this podcast more easily. You can follow the podcast on the following social platforms. Instagram and Twitter, search for at PlanetGeekPod, all one word. On Facebook, search for Planet Geek Productions. Or you can send us an email to planetgeekpod at gmail.com. Buy the guys a coffee by going to ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash planetgeekpod. And know that any and all donations will go towards improving our current and future Planet Geek Productions programs. Thank you for listening. Yes, Grogu is in my shot. Grogu is in my shot, and we got a little bit of a genie over my shoulder, and right next to him is a little bit of a Groot, and we got Sven right down there. Sven's and, sort and of Poa. like peeking out. Poa is like right in the corner. Yes, exactly. There's there's Pua. I love who and Troy podcast from the baby crib. Exactly, yeah. All right. On the count of three. Ooh, it's going to be a tough one. It's been a while, guys. Collective goodbye. One, two, three. Collective Collective yeah, okay. You're a little off there, Gav. Time zone. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah it's the time zone, yes. There's lag. There's yes, there's a little lag. Three hours difference between it here. What is Kev throttling the internet for you? <laughs> <laughs> kind of kind of choking it. It's all that cold out out, out, out uh, east there. Aquaman's a superhero. <laughs> as oh, long yeah, as he's well, not like you know blowing fish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, here to go. Oh, the He's fact just... they mentioned Batmite. Batmite. <laughs> that's right. Batmite was mentioned in it. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. That was, yeah. And again, you know what? With uh, friggin' Peacemaker's dad being the architect of his armor, you know what? If it's probably somewhere in there, that's definitely James Gunn has pulled that out of some sort of reference somewhere. So. I don't care if he's pulled out his ass. It, it's all working. Yeah, no, right. it's fantastic. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. the podcast is over. Why are you yes, people still listening? I don't know. Go yeah. home. Go home. Go. Oh, wait, they are home. Or they're in their cars. The show's don't over. Crash. Get home safely. Or if you're on your way to work, get to work safely. Or if you're on to somewhere else, get there safely. So you can listen to the next one. We care about you.